Thank you very much, Matt, for uh, leading us in prayer, and thank you, Nicole, for reading our scripture passage for us. Uh, It's clear, based upon uh, the passage that we just read, that we are coming to the end of our study of Habakkuk, this little short prophecy in the back of the Old Testament that packs a tremendous punch. And I said uh, way back at the very beginning, I said, you know, there are, there are lessons that we can learn from the prophecy of Habakkuk that are tough lessons, but very meaningful, powerful lessons if we would have ears to hear them. Let me just, let me just sort of uh, go through very quickly what those, those lessons were. The first one was is that we are not God. This is a powerful reminder that we are not God, that God, obviously, is God. And the second lesson is connected to that. This God who reigns and rules over the entire universe, he is utterly beyond us. He is transcendent. He is uh, mysterious. He can only be known to the degree that he reveals himself to us. And a lot about this God, we actually still don't know. We know a lot about God. But there's a lot of things about God that we don't know. And there's things that he does that we simply cannot understand. That doesn't make them any less meaningful. That doesn't make them any less good, even if we can't understand it. Another lesson that we learned was that life is not about us. Let's face it. We human beings, we are insanely egocentric. Uh, We really... Uh, live as though, we may not articulate this, but we live as though uh, really the universe revolves around us and our wants and our desires. And so we have desires and the goal of life, we think, is to uh, define those goals, those desires that we have to uh, chase after and pursue them, to achieve them, and then to enjoy them. And what we've seen in Habakkuk is, is that that's actually not the case. History exists not for our glory, but for God's glory. That's what everything is about. It's about him. And then we learn that that the way that God is going to achieve his glory, the way that he is going to fulfill uh, chapter 2, verse 14, I keep going back to it, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise. That's the the end goal of all of history. That's where we're going. The way that God is going to get us there is he is going to do it through judging the earth and redeeming his people. Now, everybody deserves the judgment. The Bible says that all of us fall short of the glory of God. But the the beauty is, as chapter 2 verse 4 says, the righteous person will live by faith. The just will live by faith. God is going to redeem those who cling to him in faith. And that's how he's going to bring his glory to this earth. Because he is, yes, just, but also merciful. So, As we said at the very beginning of this whole series, this book teaches us these lessons to help us face trouble without despairing. This book teaches us how to face our hardships without being completely overwhelmed by them and feeling like we're being crushed and utterly destroyed by them. And each one of these lessons that I just enumerated, each one of them helps us, contributes to us being able to face our unknown future with 
composure, with poise, with a sense of calm. But here's the incredible thing. Habakkuk says that we don't have to face an uncertain, dark, scary future just with composure, poise, and calm. We can actually face it with deep and profound joy. Look at verse 18. Yes, I will rejoice. Yet, sorry, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Habakkuk is not saying as, as he's heard from God what's about to come, the calamity that is about to come upon his nation and the, the years and years and years of trouble and hardship and difficulty. He doesn't look at that and say, you know what? I am going to be able to suck it up and face it. I'm going to have a stiff upper lip. I'm just going to put my nose to the grindstone and I'm going to push my way through. No, he says that in the middle of all that, he's going to rejoice. He's going to celebrate. he's, He's not going to rejoice for his suffering, but he is going to rejoice in his suffering, in the midst of his suffering. How is that possible? I'm going to be completely straight with you. Verses 17 through 19 of Habakkuk 3 are are some of the most beautiful poetry in the whole Bible. And yet I have been dreading preaching on these verses. I've been dreading it because these verses, they challenge me. They, they, they confront me. They, they search me like a, like a searchlight in the dark. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, on and on and on it goes. Habakkuk is saying this, even if absolutely everything is falling apart all around him, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to raise their silos like like to the ground. They're going to butcher their flocks. They're going to strip their vines. They're going to trample their fields. They're going to destroy the olive groves that they have tended for generations and generations. Everything is going to be gone. There will be nothing left. And please understand, the effects of what the Babylonians are going to do are going to be felt for generations and generations to come. You don't slaughter entire flocks and then just sort of start up again the next year. You don't tear down olive groves and then just plant them and and have olives the next year. No, this is going to be felt for a long, 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 long time. And yet Habakkuk says he will rejoice. He will be joyful in God his Savior. And and not only that, in verse 19, he says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He's saying, in the middle of all this, even though everything's falling apart around me, I'm going to flourish. I'm going to thrive through this. I'm going to grow through this. Even if COVID devastates the entire world economy, I will say it is well with my soul. You see see why I dread preaching this? 
I confess, and, and I suspect some of you feel the same thing I'm feeling. This is over the top. Okay, it's aspirational, sure. It's beautiful poetry, sure. But it's not realistic. Is it realistic? Is it supposed to be realistic? It was for Habakkuk. And it's actually meant to be for you and me. Do you notice the last words of the entire prophecy for the director of music on my stringed instruments? You know what he's saying? You know what that means? This is a song. This is a song that's meant to be sung in the worshiping life of the church, of God's people. We're supposed to sing this song. We're supposed to appropriate this song as our joy. This is supposed to be our story. This is supposed to be our truth. How in the world? Well, with trembling, I guess, I want to share with you four things. Four things about joy as Habakkuk lays it out in these four verses that we need to know to be able to come out in the place where Habakkuk comes out. First of all, we need to understand the context of joy. When does Habakkuk experience this rejoicing? Well, you go back to verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Quivering lips, heart pounding, legs trembling. What does that sound like? This guy's bawling his eyes out. He is weeping in abject pain and sorrow, and yet it's in that, it's in that state that he rejoices. See, we think that you can either grieve, wail, and weep, or we can rejoice, celebrate, revel. One or the other. You don't do the two at the same time, but that's because we don't understand. Look, what Habakkuk has learned is that sorrow, grief, suffering, they have a way of driving us deeper into God. They work, suffering almost works like a thermostat. You know how a thermostat works. Like when, when, when it gets colder outside, then the, the thermostat kicks the furnace on. As he suffered and as we face our suffering, it works like a thermostat and it drives us deeper into God. It kicks on the furnace within us and, and, and in our relationship with God where we discover resources that we didn't know were there before. You know, I've, I've never actually met anyone who has grown in their relationship with God through the easy times. Never. Yes, we say, oh, I'm so blessed. And yes, I'm so thankful. And yes, I have so much joy in me because of my circumstances. But we're not growing deeper into God himself. You know, the, the saying is true, no pain, no gain. Certainly in our spiritual lives. But, but, you see, it's only true, it's only true if we embrace the challenge of joy in this passage. Because, listen, I know, and I'm sure all of us know, people 
who through suffering did not go deeper into God. They didn't become softer. They didn't become more empathetic, more compassionate, more spiritual, more prayerful. They didn't. In fact, the opposite happened. They became angry. They became bitter. They became sour and hard. And why that happened to each and every individual, I can't speak to their individual circumstances, but, but what I can say is that if you don't want that to happen, if that's not going to happen to you, and look, COVID has made very, very clear that every one of us is, is not, sorry, not one of us is exempt from some kind of suffering. If you don't want that to happen to you, you have to accept the challenge. You have to embrace the challenge. Verse 16, he says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. This is a decision to act. Habakkuk chose to rejoice. And it, was, it was a decisive act of the will. He had to lean in. And that's the language we like to, to use in our cool modern hip culture. He leaned into it and he made a choice. He, he said, yet I will wait patiently. Yet I will rejoice. And we might say, well, what about grace? I thought it was all by grace. Doesn't, don't we just, isn't, this, isn't his ability to do this all by grace? And the answer is yes, it is by grace. But Dallas Willard says something very poignant, very memorable. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to to earning. We can be passive, you know. We can say, well, it's all of grace. My ability to be joyful in the midst of suffering or my ability to resist temptation or my ability to, to experience community with God's people or with God himself or my ability to, to become more and more like Jesus. All these things, they're all of God's grace. The Holy Spirit has to Bestow that on me. He has to give me joy. But look at the text. Grace enables effort. That's what grace does. It enables effort. Verse 19 says, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. You gotta put the effort into it. You've got to try. It's not unreformed or uncalvinistic to say we have got to try we have got to decide look you could say well you know i i really need some more upper body strength and i am praying to the lord for upper body strength but you know bicep curls are hard and i would say to you well don't stop praying for upper body strength but you still got to do the bicep curls and you can pray for joy in the midst of your suffering. You can long for joy in the midst of your suffering. But you have got to fight for it. You have got to make a decision the way Habakkuk does. What's going to move us to make that decision? How do we make that decision? What does it look like to, to do that? Well, point three. The center of joy. In, in verse 18... You've got to remember the center of joy. Verse 18. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. What's he talking about when he's saying I'm, I'm being joyful and I'm, I'm rejoicing? What, is that, what does that even mean? To rejoice. 
To be joyful in something is to delight in something. It's to find supreme value and worth in something. It's to find deep pleasure in something because it is precious, because it is worth it, because it is worthwhile. It's, it's treasuring something. That's what rejoicing in something is. And notice that what Habakkuk says is, is that he rejoices in God himself. He rejoices in the Lord. He is joyful in God, his Savior. Now, here's, here's where you start to see why I was dreading this passage, because we're being confronted. You're being confronted right now, and I'm being confronted right now, because Habakkuk is saying this, even with everything in my life stripped away, Everything is completely ruined. The nation is completely ruined. My prayers are not being answered the way I hoped that they would be answered. Even if all of that happens, nevertheless, I am going to relish in, I am going to delight in, I am going to treasure God. He is the center of my joy. In other words, for Habakkuk, God is is everything. Regardless of the circumstances he finds himself in, whether he's up or whether he's down, whether he's on top of the world or whether he's on the bottom, God is everything to him. I, this is a remarkable thing. To, to witness this in a person, friends, let me just tell you, I've seen it. And to witness it in a person is to stand in awe. I've told you about this before, perhaps, but I, I know a man who about 15 years ago or so, he broke his neck in a very serious car accident. And the effects of that were terrible. For, he was in agony for a really long time. He had these horrible, horrible migraines that would cause him to be nauseous and he'd spend half the day with his face over a toilet bowl and the other half of the day sitting in the complete darkness lying on his bed in agony. He suffered tremendously and it went on for a long time. Now eventually he did come out the other side but what is incredible is when you talk to him about it, he talks about it like the thermostat. He says that that experience drove him deeper and deeper into his God. And when you ask him, you know, would, would you go back? If you could go back in time and you could avoid all that and not have to go through all that, all that hardship, all that pain, he says he would not trade it for the world because he wouldn't want to lose the joy that he came to know in God himself. He tread on the heights. Was it 2015? 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians were kidnapped in Libya by ISIS. And these were men who were, many of them were young, they had families. They had children. They had many years of life to live. And they were beheaded on a beach on the shore of the Mediterranean. I think it was the Mediterranean. 
And while they were being killed, they were singing hymns to Jesus. They were treading on the heights. Now, all of us who are listening to me right now, and but especially those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ yet, you might be thinking, well, but that's, that's fanatical. That's, that's idealistic. That's for the hardcore believers. That's for the people who've like really, really bought into this. But you know what? It actually resonates with our deepest longings. It does. Deep down, every single one of us, we long to have a relationship that is so worth it that even with it, without anything else, even if everything else was taken away from us, if we have that relationship, we have that one person, we have that one being who loves us and cherishes us and whom we can love and we can cherish, then we will be okay. We'll still find joy. You know the saying, at least we have each other. <laughs> Look, it's a theme in some of the greatest plays in history, Romeo and Juliet, musicals, West Side Story, movies, Titanic, but even music, music, lots of popular music. Listen to these lyrics for a minute. You're all I need beside me, girl. All I need to turn my world. All I want inside my heart. All I need when we're apart. Those words were written by the famous, amazing, iconic glam rock band of the late 80s, early 90s, White Lion. <laughs> and I know it's cheesy, but it's a theme, right? Here's a better example. Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, if you're into Motown, you'll like this. You're all I need to get by. You're all I need to get by. You're all I need to get by. Like sweet morning dew, I took one look at you and it was plain to see you were my destiny. With my arms open wide, I threw away my pride. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll dedicate my life for you. See, deep inside each and every one of us, we know that there, there has to be a rock-bottom thing, a center, a core, that if it's there, if that foundation is sure and certain, it does not matter how badly the storm rages around us, we will not be moved. And Habakkuk found that in God, and he was not moved because of it. Now, how in the world, how in the world did he get there? Final point, the cause of joy. It is very significant that in verse 18, Habakkuk says, I will be joyful in God my Savior. His joy in God is directly tied to God's salvation. God is worth it because God is his savior. In other words, his joy is rooted in the gospel itself. He was a sinner saved entirely by God's grace. And when that 
sinks into you. Only then can you be joyful in God when everything else is gone. Because you see, for a believer, your salvation, the fact that you've been rescued, it is the most valuable thing and it can never be taken away from you. Now here's the the searching question. Do you value your salvation over everything else? Let me just remind you of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he condescended, he emptied himself of his glory, of his majesty, of all the rights and privileges, of his place at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, and he came into this world and clothed himself in flesh, becoming a human being, becoming weak and frail like you and me. And he came into this world to live the life that that we were supposed to live and we were unable to live, the one that we should have lived. Perfectly obedient to God. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, with a pure love, a completely unadulterated love, an absolutely 100-proof love, an intensity that you and I cannot even begin to comprehend. His food, he said, was to do the will of his father. Never once did he chafe under God's commands. And then he went to the cross to pay the penalty for your rebellion and for my rebellion, for our constant chafing under the authority of God and our refusal to submit ourselves to him. And even more than that, our refusal to love him in return for all the many blessings that he has poured out on us. We deserved death for our treason and he took that death instead of us. He endured unimaginable suffering way beyond anything Habakkuk would experience or any lifetime of misery that you or I could ever experience. He endured it all to rescue us from God's judgment so that you and I, we could know God's love. We could experience his love. We could have a relationship with him. That's the gospel. It's not the whole gospel, but it's the gist of the gospel. When you trust Jesus Christ with your life, when you give yourself to him, you become free of guilt You're free of death. You're free of fear. You're free of hell and punishment. Those things are real, friends. They're real. These are not just concepts that we have dreamed up as human beings because we're very creative and because psychologically we need to make sense of of our lives. These are real, actual realities. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then your salvation becomes the most treasured thing you could ever have. And it was won for you by your God himself. And so he is the thing that you treasure more than anything else. And you value him. So much that you give yourself to him unconditionally, unreservedly, unquestioningly. You know, it is shocking to me how sometimes, how people don't really value their salvation. And here's how you know, because they, they say, yeah, you know, I like, I like it that Jesus died for my sin. I do like that. 
I like it that he loved me. It makes me feel good. Oh, uh, but what? I, I'm supposed to be generous with my money, give my money away, like a lot of my money away? Oh, I, I'm supposed to do with my sexuality what the Bible says I should do with my sexuality? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to forgive people who wrong me? I'm, I'm even supposed to go as so far as to, to love my enemies? and pray for people who persecute me, people who are against me. I'm supposed to desire their good and will their good. I'm supposed to tell the truth all the time, even if it's not to my advantage and things will turn out bad for me. I'm supposed to surrender control of my life to this Jesus and and let him direct me rather than make decisions myself about what I want to do and what I think is right and what I think is wrong. Oh, I'm not so sure. When you look at the cross, when you go back to that moment on Calvary, and you really start to mull it over, you really start to think about it you really start to think about your sin and your your need to be rescued and the fact that Jesus didn't just have to die for you, but that he was glad to do it. That God himself punched a hole in the roof of the world and came into the muck and mire of this place to pluck you from the road to destruction and put you on the road to joy. It fills your heart. (laughs) It fills your heart. You can say with, with Job, you know the story of Job, the guy loses everything and he says, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You know, I, I started this series and almost preached every sermon in this series with a, a little shout-out to the Lord of the Rings. I figured I'd end that way, too. There's this beautiful scene in the last book, Return of the King. Sam and Frodo are in Mordor. They're on their own. They're making their way to the mountain, and it doesn't look like they're going to get there. The enemies are closing in from all different sides, and it looks like evil is going to win. And Sam is laying there in the middle of the night and he's distraught over this. And then he looks up and listen to what Tolkien writes. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach.
Friends, that's what God has given each of us. If you put your trust in him, he has given you a light and high beauty that is forever beyond the reach of any suffering, of any evil, because your life, Paul says, is hidden with, with God in Christ, and it can never be taken. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Please pray with me. Father, we long to experience the joy that Habakkuk knew even in the midst of his troubled times. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would make yourself precious to us and the salvation you have won for us in Jesus precious to us so that we will not be moved, we will not be shaken, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea. We will stand, not by our strength, but by the strength of the sovereign Lord who enables us to tread on the heights. Amen. As the worship team makes their way back uh, to their positions, let me just remind you uh, again that uh, ministry continues here at Grace Valley and we uh, really covet your prayers, uh, but also your support. Um, you can... Continue to, to give uh, electronically via the website or to uh, uh, send uh, money through e-transfer, office at gracevalleychurch.ca, uh, so that we can use those funds for uh, the ministry of Grace Valley, and, and we look forward to being able to, to be together again, uh, of course, and see one another face-to-face, -face, and then we can actually take up our offering as we normally do in the midst of a service. And, you know, each week uh, we've been... Reminding ourselves at this time, when we would normally be doing communion, that we can't do that right now. Um, and I think it's good for us to do that because this, what we're doing right now, right here, this is a substitute, okay, for worship as God designed it. This is not how God meant for us to, to meet with him. He meant with us, for us to meet with him face-to-face, -face, bodies uh, in proximate, proximity to one another, for we are the body of Christ. And, and we don't want to get too comfortable <laughs> with this, uh, even if it goes on for a little while yet. And so we're fasting from communion. And fasting is meant uh, to uh, create a longing in us. And I hope that the longing that, that you're having includes a longing to be together again in bodily worship. Listen to these words uh, from Psalm 42 where David, or sorry, no, one of the sons of Korah actually writes this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? Listen to this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Let's just take a moment to pray um, for that day as we remember how we used to do this together. Um, Pray with me for a minute. Father, we remember when we were together and it was beautiful and maybe we didn't even realize how beautiful it was and we took it for granted. Many of us maybe are learning not to do that going forward because we do feel the weight of being apart. And so we pray, Lord, that you will end this time of separation and you will bring us back together. End the pandemic. Uh, Bring a vaccine. Bring closure to this, uh, this time apart so that we can Uh, embrace one another as brothers and sisters again and celebrate in person the beautiful gospel of Jesus, who we love. In his name we pray. Amen.